to another episode of Real Atheology. My name is Justin Schieber. These last few weeks have found me very busy with debates and dialogues and preparing for these debates and dialogues. On the weekend of March 10, I had a handful of uh, dialogues and one debate with Randall Rouser up in Edmonton, Alberta. And just last weekend, we had a few more dialogues uh, down in Phoenix and Tucson, Arizona. However, even before those, I had a debate on March 2nd on God and the Problem of Suffering at Grand Valley State University here in West Michigan. For this episode, I have the audio for that March 2nd debate on God and Suffering. Ben Watkins and I uh, will be recording some new episodes. We've got some really cool stuff planned for you guys. But before we get to the audio of this episode, I do want to make a simple request. A lot of people know that iTunes reviews are actually a, a huge factor in people discovering new podcasts. So if you'd like these first new episodes of Relay Theology, please do consider leaving a positive review of the show. That will make it more likely that other people will also discover the show. Without any further delay, here is my debate with Tim Arndt at Grand Valley State University on God and suffering. Enjoy. Shalom. Hi, I'm Luke Smith. I'm Zed I'm the president of CFI Center for Inquiry. It's the uh, only atheist group on campus. Trust me, I've checked. But that is something we can say that Ratio Christie can't, so, you know, there's that. <laughs> so I'm here to introduce you to Justin Schieber. Justin Schieber is the former co-host of Reasonable Doubts, our radio show and podcast, and current host of Real Atheology at realatheology.com. It's a conversational podcast focusing on contemporary academic philosophy of religion. Justin has lectured on philosophical arguments on the existence of God and has participated in many public debates throughout the United States and Canada. December 2016 saw the publication of An Atheist and a Christian Walk into a Bar, a conversational explanation of the merits of theism co-authored with Canadian theologian Randall Roser and published through Prometheus Books. Books will be available in the back afterwards, and also CFI will be available in the back handing out swag of all sorts. So hope to see you back there. Thank you, Luke. It has been an absolute pleasure working with CFI and co-hosting this debate. They have put a lot of work into making this event possible, and we are thankful for their willingness to participate in this respectful dialogue. Going forward, it is our hope to see this interaction, such as, and more interactions such as this among faith groups here at Grand Valley. As for myself, I am a member of Ratio Christi, where every week we meet to talk about foundational issues of faith and truth. We are a Christian organization which hopes to challenge Christians to think deeply about their faith. Many students of various different faiths have also enjoyed discussing these important matters with us. Please visit our Ratio Christi booth before you leave to get more information and to sign up for our emailing list. Also, you can follow us on Facebook at Ratio Christi GVSU for more daily information on topics of faith and truth. Our representative in this debate is Tim Arndt. He is a Christian evangelist and apologist who has spoken at various high schools, colleges, and churches. He is also the chapter director of Ratio Christi here at GVSU. There is nothing he loves more than a good conversation. His primary topics of interest are religion, literature, and philosophy. In this debate, each debater will, be offered a, will offer a 15-minute opening statement, followed by 30 minutes of a back-and-forth conversation period where they can ask questions of each other and answer them accordingly. The event will end with 20 minutes of Q&A, so please prepare any questions you might have before that time. Without further ado, please give our first speaker, Justin Schieber, a warm welcome. 
Well, good evening. <laughs> I'm delighted uh, to be here today to uh, speak with you guys on, uh, on the topic of God and suffering. Uh, thank you, Tim. I'm, I'm confident uh, that we'll have a productive conversation here tonight. I want to begin uh, by, again, thanking um, the, C the Center for Inquiry and Ratio Christi groups here at uh, Grand Valley State University. Uh, for helping to organize this event, I want to thank our moderator, C.J. Thompson, uh, for working with us, and uh, I, of course, want to thank uh, all of you for coming out tonight. Uh, too often, I think people uh, like to kind of circle around their respective echo chambers and uh, rarely expose themselves to the other side, and so I think uh, we can all appreciate that. What Tim and I are going to be doing tonight is uh, comparing two very different metaphysical theories or, or worldviews about what kinds of things exist in the world um, in order to see which one is the best explanation for certain facts about suffering in the world. One view on the proverbial table tonight advocated by my opponent is a view of the world which includes a god. So what kind of god? Well, for reasons both of historical contingency and some reasons uh, philosophical in nature, the kind of god uh, being taken seriously most of the time in philosophical discussion is a view of god that we might call classical theism. Now, at a minimum, the kind of deity which this posits is an immaterial person uh, with some key characteristics, uh, omnipotence, which is all-powerful. So this means that God is not limited to, um, to uh, various different circumstances or even by the laws of nature because he's their very author. Omniscience, which means that God knows everything that can be known, and uh, moral perfection. Moreover, this God is said to be responsible for all things that exist. So because comparisons, of course, require two different things in order to be compared, uh, we need to talk about the other hypothesis on the table tonight, the competition. So I'm going to be defending a certain atheistic view of the world, and we'll call it the hypothesis of indifference. Ultimately, the hypothesis of indifference posits that the universe is uncreated and causally closed. There are no forces uh, which exist outside of the natural world but which are also capable of interacting within the natural world. We as a primate species were not created for any purpose of a god, um, and for the sake of simplicity, you may choose to think of the hypothesis of indifference as just the negation of theism. So you may think of it as atheism. Now given, what, uh, given that I wanna get us to start thinking about certain facts of suffering as a kind of body of evidence, it might be a good idea then to get clear on what we mean when we use the word evidence. So philosopher of science at Johns Hopkins University, Victor DeFate, writes, the most widely accepted probabilistic account of evidence is the so-called increase in probability or positive relevance account. The idea here is, is simply that E is evidence for H if and only if E makes H more probable than it otherwise would have been. And so facts about suffering can count as evidence against, or can count as evidence for the hypothesis of indifference if upon taking them into consideration, we should think that the hypothesis of indifference is more probable than it otherwise would have been. Now for the argument. The problem of suffering is of course sometimes called the problem of evil, uh, is an age-old problem or family of problems. 
Now, some of you may be familiar uh, with what has been called the logical problem of evil uh, or of suffering. This is the view, uh, this is an argument which asserts that uh, any uh, suffering or evil uh, is logically inconsistent with the existence of God. And so insofar as you can identify some instance of it, therefore you've disproved God. Um, I'm not going to be that bold tonight. Uh, I want to give God a bit of a break. After all, we do have a bit of a history. My comparatively modest version of the argument uh, claims that facts about suffering, while compatible with the existence of God, nevertheless provide significant evidence against the existence of God. The argument is actually quite simple. Premise one, uh, Justin's facts about suffering are very surprising on theism. Premise two, Justin's facts about suffering are very unsurprising on the hypothesis of indifference. Therefore, Justin's facts about suffering are strong evidence in favor of indifference and against theism. So let's put some flesh on those bones of that argument. What do I mean by Justin's facts about suffering? Well, more, uh, they, can, they come into two broad categories, one of them being moral suffering and the other being natural suffering. Moral suffering is suffering of humans and animals which results from the moral trespasses uh, on the part of some human person in such a way that that human person thereby becomes morally blameworthy for that suffering. So here you can think of torture, psych, uh, physical or psychological, think of murder, violence, sexual abuse of various forms, dehumanization generally. Many times these aren't isolated instances, but are the, the uh, result of larger systemic or organized efforts. So if you think of the kind of deplorable actions of, of a group like ISIS or of Nazi Germany or institutionalized slavery, it's important to notice that many of these kind of large scale, um, large scale effects are only possible uh, because uh, are only really possible because of what we might call a kind of general weakness of moral will within humans and the ease with which we can be morally manipulated to do horrible things. Now, of course, nobody thinks, right? Nobody thinks that they can be morally manipulated to do terrible things. Um, but, but it's probably true. In certain circumstances, everyone is going to be able to be morally manipulated in that way. Um, and so the state of affairs is actually pretty poor when it comes to the kinds of beings that we are and the kinds of things that we are uh, sometimes willing to do to each other. Now on indifference, of course, this is not at all surprising. If creatures exist on indifference, then they are the product of blind evolutionary forces and these forces do not care uh, about our well-being uh, any more than they would care about keeping a particular comet on course. On theism, however, our expectations about this kind of stuff uh, unfolds quite differently. On theism, we'd expect that God would create a, uh, a very different world from ours, a better world. Imagine, for example, that God created a world and populated it with what uh, philosopher Evan Fales calls perfect creatures. So perfect creatures are creatures very much like God. Uh, but whereas God is himself uncreated, perfect creatures are created. So these creatures would be omnipotent like God, they would be omniscient like God, and they would be morally perfect like God. A world populated by such creatures would be free of murder, of rape, of exploitation, of theft, all on down the line. Uh, this is a world free of moral suffering. Such a world would be a far better world. Uh, than the one that is populated by clumsy two-legged apes that routinely get themselves into tragic situations because of their many limitations and moral weaknesses that plague even their best of intentions and their best laid plans. 
the fact that our world contains not perfect creatures, but profoundly imperfect creatures like us humans makes much more sense on the hypothesis of indifference. But let's now turn to the second category of suffering, which is natural suffering. So natural suffering of humans and non-human animals. Uh, this is suffering which results from the operation of natural processes in such a way that no human person can be morally accountable uh, for the resultant suffering. In River Out of Eden, biologist Richard Dawkins writes, quote, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. If there ever is a time of plenty, that very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. Now notice that the suffering and death here caused by, this perpetual, by the perpetual selective pressures isn't just an unfortunate byproduct of a particularly well-designed system. Rather, the suffering and death is intrinsic to the deplorable natural system that we have. If God exists, we are well within our epistemic rights to call upon the author to explain. Moreover, what about, suffering from, what about the suffering of humans that results from earthquakes, tornadoes, unpredictable droughts, and, and uh, and tsunamis or disease. How can, one, how can the setting up of such a system be the making of a being of maximum moral perfection, unlimited resources, and unlimited intelligence? When, when he had so many other options available to him as an omnipotent being? Perhaps no such being exists. Perhaps indifference is true. After all, indifference has no explanatory problem here. Again, natural laws that lead to natural disasters do not care for us. Moreover, Dar Darwinian processes of this sort are the only way in which, an in which an indifferent cosmos might bring about human persons. It seems clear to me, then, that natural suffering as well uh, favors uh, indifference over theism. So how might somebody respond to an argument like this? One way in which it seems that God, if he exists, could be justified in allowing an instance of suffering is if it was logically necessary to achieve some greater good. To illustrate the kind of notion of moral justification at work here, think of how a doctor is clearly morally justified in inflicting pain upon a child, but only because that pain happens to be the unfortunate byproduct or result of some medically necessary treatment. Uh, but this example, of course, illuminates another important detail about the kinds of moral justification that are needed on theism. The greater good being identified here can't just be any greater good. Rather, the greater good being identified must be for the primary benefit of the sufferer in question in order to justify that suffering. So what do I mean here? Well, consider how utterly perverse it would be for a doctor to inflict suffering upon an innocent child in the form of some medically unnecessary surgery, for example, um, merely to inform medical students uh, so that they can gain some benefit of surgical knowledge. Now, even if it leads to the greater good of those medical students going on in their career and helping others, um, that doesn't justify the child's suffering 
because it was not for the primary benefit of that child. That child was exploited. It was made to feel suffering for the benefit of somebody else. That is what exploitation means. A perfect God would never exploit. Now, because my arguments are aimed at theism generally, it might be tempting to argue that when we add kind of certain Christian-specific doctrines to the core hypothesis of theism, that my observations would, in fact, be much more likely on theism, uh, that the, the observations of suffering would be. However, this would be uh, an incomplete response at best. One must do more than simply add new claims to the core hypothesis of theism, which would help to explain uh, the facts about suffering. One must also demonstrate for us tonight that there is an antecedent reason for thinking that these additional theological claims are actually likely to be true if theism is true. Without such a reason, these arguments remain unscathed by these additional theological assertions. Um, because the question is not whether or not uh, we can construct a story that makes these observations cohere with theism. The question is whether or not uh, theism or indifference better explains these observations. My opponent, if he wishes to show that uh, facts about suffering do not constitute significant evidence for theism, he will need to show how his view, theism, explains these facts better than indifference. And ladies and gentlemen, unless and until he does this, uh, I think it remains quite clear that uh, certain facts about suffering uh, provide very significant evidence for the hypothesis of indifference over theism. Thank you very much. Thank you, Justin. Now, let me give a warm welcome to our next speaker, Tim. Well, thank you all so much for joining us here today. Um, when I was looking on Facebook, I saw that we had about 20 people who RSVP'd, so I was getting a little worried, but thank you for showing up. Um, I also want to say a big thanks to the Center of Inquiry. They put a lot of hard work um, into making this event possible. Also, thank you to the Rashio Christie team for the support you've shown me and the work you put into this event. And I also want to thank Justin. Um, Justin is the one who actually invited me to participate in this debate. And a quick word about Justin. I really respect this guy. Um, I respect him for a couple reasons. One is that I've watched several debates of him. I've uh, invited him to Ratio Christi events. Um, we've met and had coffee. And he always carries himself in a very respectable manner. And we always have great dialogue. Um, but most of all, I respect the fact that he thinks deeply about the fundamental questions of life. Even though we're on the opposite spectrums of belief, I would commend his example to anyone in taking the time to thoroughly research what it is that you believe and why you believe it. And I guess it might seem odd for an opposing debater to do this, but I would recommend his book to anyone. It is a great example of how an atheist and a Christian can have a deep and respectable conversation on matters that they are most divided on, but also the matters that are most important. So real quick, I just wanted to uh, um, be sensitive here. And just on the front end, I wanted to apologize to anyone in this room who might be going through a time of intense suffering right now. If you're facing the problem of suffering in a very real and personal way, I'm afraid that our debating on issues of logic may sound insensitive. Um, I've been through one period of my life where I faced severe emotional suffering and all the logic in the world was of no comfort to me. So I just want to say that if anyone is experiencing suffering right now, I would love to talk with you after the event about your experience. 
So when we look at the problem of evil or suffering, we need to realize that there are actually many problems of evil. Um, we would group them into three major types. The first is um, commonly called the religious problem of evil, or one could say the personal problem of evil. As I've mentioned, our personal experience usually isn't fixed by any amount of reasoning. If someone told you about a recent loss in the family, and then you were to offer them logical justifications and formulas for the existence of evil, you would probably receive a well-deserved slap in the face. What helps people come to peace or closure in suffering will look different for everyone. For you, it may be a friendship. For another, it may be an inspirational experience. For someone else, it may just take time and much contemplation. There is no one answer fixes all for personal suffering and coming to cope with um, the emotional aspect of the religious problem of evil. So um, that is one type of problem of evil. The second type um, Justin mentioned is called the logical problem of evil, and this is a family of problems of evil. If we were having this debate right now in the 50s or 60s, and um, by the looks of this stage, we probably could have been, um, we would be debating about the logical problem of evil. And um, the logical problem of evil, what it um, sought to show was that it was impossible for an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good God to exist simultaneously with evil. Um, note that I said it sought to show that the existence of God and evil simultaneously was impossible. Well, through many defenses and answers, which um, philosophers often call theodicies, offered such as Plantinga's free will defense or Hicks' whole building theodicy, various greater good defenses, theonomist theodicies, Leibnizian theodicies, and many more, um, it was shown that it is in fact possible for God and evil to exist at the same time. So the atheists sought to prove that God and evil could not exist at the same time, but the arguments failed. The logical problem of evil was shown to be solvable. J.L. Mackey, William Rowe, and many other highly esteemed atheistic philosophers have admitted that the logical problem of evil is in fact solvable. So with the failure of logical problems of evil came the popularity of evidential problems of evil. This is the type of problem of evil that we are debating here today. I won't spend too much time explaining what they are since Justin just presented a very strong example of an evidential problem of evil. I would differentiate it from the logical problem in this way. So the logical problem of evil sought to show that it was impossible for God and evil to exist at the same time. The evidential problem seeks to show that the amount and intensity of suffering in the world makes it unlikely for a God to exist. The atheists switched from trying to prove that it was impossible for God to exist um, with uh, given evil to arguing that evil makes it most likely that God doesn't exist. So today, the way I'll respond to evidential problems of evil is not by offering the demonstrative answer to the problem of evil. In fact, if anyone here were to tell me that they did know the demonstrative, final, and true answer to the problem of evil, I would actually challenge them on that because I don't think any man does have the ultimate answer to the problem of evil. I think if we did, we wouldn't be having this debate here today. So since I'm not going to offer the answer to the problem of evil, how then will I defend against this argument that Justin has brought to the table? Well, defense is exactly what I shall do, and evidential arguments 
claim to provide evidence that show it is not likely that God or a God exists, and all I will be attempting to do this evening is showing that evidential arguments are weak and ultimately unsuccessful in accomplishing their goal. This is my approach to, the eviden to evidential problems of evil. So my first challenge to evidential problems of evil is that they cannot weaken enough forms of theism in order for atheism to be the more likely conclusion. Let me explain. So let's say they have a valid, sound, and very plausible evidential problem of evil. Let's say this argument successfully demonstrates that it is unlikely that there is an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good God. What it does not do is demonstrate that atheism is the natural conclusion of this successful argument. What it actually does is it provides a challenge to one characteristic of a God, namely knowledge, power, or goodness. To say that God cannot have these three characteristics does not naturally lead to God not existing. It merely criticizes one of these attributes of God. So if this argument is successful, it would still be rational to believe in God. For example, one could still believe in the God of an open theist. Um, open theists um, is a fairly large um, group within Christianity. They have seminaries, they have churches, and they really believe that God is not powerful enough to fix all the problems in the world. So you could, if, even if this argument is successful, you could still be an open theist. Or there are many people who do believe in a God, but hate him. So you could say, sure, these pro this evidential argument is successful, and God is evil, and I hate him. But it does not lead you to atheism. It just merely criticizes one characteristic of him. You pick. So in summary, even if this argument is successful, it fails to show that atheism is the best alternative. The argument then, if successful, serves to point you in the direction of what kind of God you believe in, not that there is no God. So you'll notice that I keep saying, if successful. This argument will lead, does not lead to atheism. However, now I want to quickly argue that it is highly unlikely for there to be a successful evidential problem of evil. So evidential problems of evil employ inductive reasoning. This is reasoning that leads to a most likely or a not likely conclusion. One difficulty of using inductive reasoning is that one, is that one must include all variables concerning the matter in question, or at least as many variables as possible. In this case, the evidential argument against God needs to address all of the positive arguments for the existence of God. And let me give you a quick analogy showing you why the positive arguments for the existence of God need to be addressed. I'll quickly note that my analogy is based on an analogy created by Alvin Plantinga, um, but I've adapted it for our purposes here. So let's say there's a guy named Phil, and Phil is a Filipino. And I'm a Filipino, by the way. So Phil the Filipino is a lifeguard. And we are trying to determine whether or not he is able to swim. So let's say we find a very accurate statistic that says only 10% of Filipinos can swim. We have just received factual data that successfully demonstrates to us that it is highly unlikely that Phil is able to swim. With the data given, the odds are good enough that I would bet on Phil not being able to swim. With the data provided, we come to a quality inductive argument showing us that it's very unlikely that Phil can swim, case closed. However, we come across a second highly accurate set of data or statistic, and it tells us that 99% of Filipino lifeguards can swim. 
So now what is the likelihood that Phil can swim? It's quite good. The second set of data has overcome the first, and the likelihood that Phil the Filipino can swim is actually very high. It is the same thing with evidential problems of evil. Even if atheists are successful in providing evidence that make it unlikely that God exists, they need to demonstrate how that evidence is not overcome by all the other positive evidence for the existence of God. And there's a lot of evidence in favor of God existing. I'd mention several quickly here. Um, William Lane Craig's Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God has been one of the most debated and discussed arguments in the world of philosophy for the last several decades. Why is that? It's because it presents a very strong argument for the existence of God that needs to be taken seriously and is taken very seriously by all philosophers. Also, various forms of teleological arguments are being taken very seriously, such as the fine-tuning argument. The late Christopher Hitchens said that in a discussion with other prestigious atheists, he asked which argument for the existence of God is the most problematic for us as atheists. And most of them said the fine-tuning argument. And then another example, Quentin Smith, one of the best atheistic philosophers and debaters, has said that if you put all the atheists and Christian philosophers in the same room and held dozens of debates, the Christians would win nine times out of ten. Obviously, Dr. Smith doesn't believe the Christians are in the right, but my point is this. The atheists cannot disregard the positive arguments for the existence of God, and it's highly unlikely that they will be able to demonstrate that their negative evidence for God's existence is not overcome by the positive evidence for God's existence. So let me summarize and conclude everything I've covered so far. I'm arguing that I can provide a sufficient defense to evidential problems of evil just by showing that the arguments are unsuccessful. The two main points I've provided you are that evidential arguments do not weaken enough forms of theism in order for atheism to be the best option. And I also pointed out that evidential arguments are unable to show that the negative evidence they might provide cannot be overcome by the pantheon of positive evidence in favor of the existence of God. It is my conclusion that after considering these arguments, that belief in God remains rational. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Justin and Tim will now engage in a conversation-style debate prompted by a starting question provided by me. In this segment, each debater will have the chance to respond to the other and ask their own questions following the initial one. If necessary, I will interject with questions of my own to guide the conversation, to move things along, or simply to ask for clarification. I would ask that the debaters respect each other's time and not interrupt the initial thoughts of the debater addressed. With that, let's begin. Tim has argued that evidential problems of evil cannot successfully weaken enough forms of theism in order for atheism to be the more plausible option. Justin, how would you respond to this argument? I think in, in some sense uh, that is correct, uh, but notice, so there are a number of different ways in which uh, someone might define atheism. Um, and the way I defined it here was the negation of theism, and theism I was using as a, a reference to specifically classical theism. So you're right in that um, you know, the problem of evil is obviously not going to be a problem for an evil god or something like that, right? Or of, you know, a kind of ancient Greek pantheon where they're all, you know, battling it out for, you know, land supremacy or something like that. Um, so you're absolutely right. It's not going to affect all, all views of theism, but on specifically classical theism, I think it's a very serious problem. 
And so uh, just to clarify here, so for example, I referenced open theists who are um, broadly considered evangelical um, Christians, and um, they would simply say, God isn't all powerful to defeat all evil. So even though that's not fitting your definition of classical theism, based on your admission here, it would be acceptable in light of the evidential argument to become an open theist, an evangelical Christian. Well, the question of whether or not it's acceptable to be, you know, whether or not it's, it's you know, you're within your epistemic rights, whether or not it can be rational to be a theist, I think is a separate question from the topic tonight, which is about whether or not certain facts about suffering can be significant evidence against uh, a specific form of theism. So yeah, they might, it might be possible that open theists, uh, persons who interpret God's omnipotent, sorry, omniscience as limited by future contingencies, so God doesn't know the future, um, yeah, this, this argument is not going to have much weight for them. That's, that's certainly true. But I think that they're significant enough of a minority for that to not be a terribly interesting um, debate on its own. Yeah, and then the, the main point of my argument, I believe so stands on that. Um, atheism does not seem to be the best option. It seems to be just one of many. And the arguments we're providing, the factual data, um, is not sufficient, I would say it's not sufficient enough to lead to atheism. So um, that's, that's all I'm trying to say with this. Sure, argument. sure. Um, yeah, so when I went, you know, notice how I phrased my argument, it was comparative in, uh, inference to the best explanation, right? So when, you know, yeah, we could stand here all day and, and look at every single possible coherent worldview, um, but I think for, for pragmatic purposes and for cultural purposes of culturally relevant ideas, we, it's, it's a good idea to narrow things down and to ask what best explains certain facts about suffering. And I think that theism has a really tough time explaining some of these facts, even if other forms of theism might not think of it as much of a big deal. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to move on to our next question. Tim, Justin has argued that any greater good um, resulting from suffering must be for the good of the individual suffering. How would you respond to this claim? So uh, with questions of what is the greater good, they're very difficult questions. And I would say they're difficult questions because here we are, we live in a very limited, um, with a very limited perspective. Um, there is um, an analogy that's been provided where um, it shows a child, a young child, um, knows that there's gonna be a party at the house later that evening, and they ask the dad, dad, can I stay up and stay at the party? And the dad says, no, no, you can't. You have to go to bed. And the kid doesn't understand it's awful, and it's uh, the worst decision the dad could ever make in the child's eyes. Well, the dad has a lot, the father has a lot of um, things to think through that the child isn't thinking of through. One is, how does the child's bedtime affect his behavior when he stays up late in the following days? Do my visitors even want to have this kid around? Um, and many, many other factors that the kid, child isn't thinking about. So that analogy I just serve to say, serves to say that when wondering what is the greater good, how can any of us determine what the greater good really is? I would suggest to you that rather than our um, 70, 60, 70 years of lifespan and our knowledge we hold versus, and put your theist glasses on if you're an atheist, 
an eternal being who's existed for all, um, all time and beyond time, um, who would have the better perspective of what the greater good is? So basically what I'm saying is um, it's very difficult for us on a limited level to determine what is the greater good. So at least with, the, with respect to the question being asked about whether or not um, you know, the greater good that seeks to justify some instance of suffering must be for the primary benefit of the sufferer. Uh, your analogy seemed to support that, right? So you're positing this, this, this father figure who, you know, um, does, does something that his child doesn't like and the child sees it as evil from his perspective, right? But the reason it's justified from, the, from a broader perspective, from a, more, a, from a perspective of someone who knows all the, all the, all the facts here, it's justified because getting to bed on time uh, it has benefits for that child. So it seems like you agree that that is an important limitation on uh, available theodicies, that, that, the, that the greater good must be to the primary benefit of the sufferer. Um, obviously, the analogy is not a perfect analogy, but, but you know, all the analogies fall apart at one point or another. But at least with respect to the analogy you chose there, it seems that you would accept my, um, my, my qualifier there. Uh, what I guess what I would say is that um, the primary benefit, um, so I, sure, let's say it'd be to the primary benefit of the sufferer, but there'd be, my point is that there's a lot, there could be lots of aspects surrounding the suffering sure. that we have no way of interpreting and knowing how it impacts the greater good for that person, as well as the rest of, uh, yeah. I guess, the timeline and history and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I would, I would agree. I think, I think that that's a separate issue uh, from whether or not the suffering need, whether or not the greater good needs to uh, be for the primary benefit of the sufferer. Um, with respect to all the, you know, because we're finite beings compared to God, God is going to have a lot of reasons that we don't have access to. I think that's a perfectly fine move to make, but it doesn't undermine my inference. And the reason why is because we're comparing two different hypotheses as to their ability to explain the data. I'm arguing that the suffering is unlikely on theism. Your response is, we're not in a position to say that. But nevertheless, premise two still says that the suffering is, is expected on difference. And so to that degree, it's still a better explanation because mystery is not an explanation. Not being able to assess premise one is not an explanation. Therefore, uh, indifference is going to be left by default as expecting and, and predicting the data at hand. And so it is a better explanation, I think. Yep, so the thing is, we're coming down to the question here of who has the better explanation. And um, so within theism, um, like I've said, I don't, I don't think anyone, um, any uh, Christian or theist, has the answer provided. Um, and I would note that um, it seems that, at least within Christianity, um, it's very, very clear that God does not provide the um, demonstrative answer, but what Christians have done is we have provide answers. And so kind of the idea is that we provide answers that are, like you said, they are coherent um, and they work. And in fact, we're just defending God's answer. So now with that in mind, so we have answers um, that make our option possible. And then you're lobbying saying that evil makes it unlikely for us and more likely for atheism. Now we come down to who gets to, who gets to decide which makes it more likely or not. So for um, most theists, they're going to find the answers presented by theists to be 
um, sufficient and to be good reasoning. Um, and then um, as far as atheists, um, the, obviously since you already accept the worldview, I guess what I'm saying is we're both kind of coming from assumptions. And so the problem is that um, when it comes to the atheists attacking the Christian perspective, or I should say the theistic perspective, um, it's, it's going to be very difficult for you to use evidential arguments in such a way that you can demonstrate that you do have the better explanation. Um, it'll seem to only be the better explanation to those who already agree with you. Okay, so, th okay, so you, you make some important points there. Um, but what, what I, I, I disagree in the sense that you can say that uh, you know, it's just a matter of you know, where you're starting from who's going to have the best, the best explanation, right? So, let's, so as a thought experiment, let's say that both you and I thought that setting aside all the facts about suffering that I presented today, you and I were very familiar with all the reasons for and against God. And let's say that you and I are just pure agnostics. We are just right in the middle. You have no idea what, you don't know where to lean, right? And I don't know where to lean. And we're just standing here as, as non, we're not atheists, we're not theists, we're just complete agnostics. We don't know the answer. It's all ambiguous to us. Now we take on board facts about suffering. So this draws a distinction between all else being equal and uh, so in the sense of, you know, if all else is being equal, if the evidence is equal from our perspective and then we bring on this, uh, on this new evidence, all else being equal, what should that evidence tell us toward? What, what, what would be your answer to that? Right. In, in your, uh, um, your situation here, as true 50 percenters, mm -hmm. if you demonstrate evidence for the, the one evidence, then sure, it would lean you to the, the 51 percent. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's what I'm saying here. And I'm not just saying that it would move you toward, I'm saying it's significant evidence. It would move you in a very substantive way toward, uh, toward atheism. And so, while it's true that there are other arguments for theism, the, answering this one question tonight does not, um, does not permit you to conclude, therefore, atheism or therefore theism. I'm just saying that this is a huge, important, and big problem for theism. And uh, I don't think that there are any plausible answers for it. I'm not saying that it disproves theism, but I'm saying that this should give uh, some serious pause to persons of, of theistic tendencies. So, um, in reference to uh, the analogy I gave earlier, um, I, I would say that, um, sure, um, you may have evidence, but it would be, in the case of Phil the Filipino, you have the 10% of all Filipinos, um, only 10% can swim statistic. Um, so you have to include positive arguments. And the, and the thing is, and the thing you need, you need to know is that even um, some of the major um, atheistic philosophers who proposed the evidential arguments, so for example, Michael Martin, um, prior to Roe, his evidential argument would have been the most well-known, the most famous, and he recognized this, and so he had to include um, the positive arguments for God's existence in his evidential argument. He understood that it has to be in there. And so what he said was, I find no merit in the positive <laughs> um, evidence for the existence of God. And so, given he finds no merit in it, then he finds some evidence for atheism, then sure, that would be, um, that would apply well to him. But the thing I'm, um, I think is important is today, especially um, we're 50, 60 years removed now, um, we're seeing that 
Um, a lot of people, including atheists, are taking the positive evidence for theism um, much more seriously than they were back in that day. And, um, and, and it's the variable, um, you can't ignore it. So um, the problem then for the atheist is, how do you demonstrate that your evidence is not overcome by the rest of the positive evidence? Sure. Um, so, I mean, I would object to uh, your attribution of, of Roe not um, that his lack of inclusion of positive arguments for God was a, a problem in his paper. I think that his paper was simply arguing, his 1979 paper, I'm assuming we're talking about. I, I wasn't uh, criticizing Roe. Oh, no. I was just saying Michael Martin included it in his. But. Oh, okay. I got you. I got you. All right. Um, no, I, again, I, I do not think that answering this one question uh, gives a conclusion. I am, I'm only, again, I'm only arguing that this is significant evidence. Now, what that means, though, is that if you take seriously the argument, uh, you do need to be able to provide and defend good theistic arguments. And there are interesting arguments out there, to, to be sure. Uh, I don't find them compelling. Um, but, of course, that's, that's, a, that's a broader scope than, than our debate here tonight. Okay, so the next question. Tim has argued that the inductive arguments of suffering are only successful in working against certain forms of theism, not open theism. How would you respond to this? Yeah, that was, we've already gone back and forth on that specific issue, but yeah. Okay. So, uh, Justin has argued that the facts of suffering in the world are not very surprising given naturalism. Tim, how would you respond to this argument? <clears throat> So uh, he's saying that, um, just kind of repeating what Justin said here, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but within naturalism, you know, we have Darwinian <laughs> evolution, and uh, we have um, um, death is necessary, and suffering is necessary um, in order for there to be exist existence. Um, I guess my, um, I'd say it's a very, um, it's, uh, it's a valid point. I guess my critique of it would be, is that within um, a naturalistic world um, worldview, um, you'd have a hard time seeing this as an evil thing or as a bad thing. <clears throat> um, if there's suffering in the world, sure, it feels bad, but then um, as a good naturalist, um, we should be rejoicing um, that there's suffering and that uh, the lowlier um, beings are dying off so that um, we can um, progress as um, as beings and as life forms. So, I my point is, it's um, you bring up a good point. My only criticism is that at the when you're in the world of naturalism, um, there are difficulties in seeing the suffering as being a bad thing. I, I guess I would challenge you on that. Why why is that? What what leads you to think that uh, naturalism? Um, can't view suffering as a bad thing. It seems, it seems obvious uh, that, um, that a state of being in suffering is an intrinsically bad state of affairs, such that it provides um, irreducibly normative reasons to avoid and to uh, not inflict upon others. It seems to me like that's, that's just something obvious. And it seems to me that if, you know, absent absent defeaters, I, I, I don't see how that's something that is not rationally available to the naturalist. 
Right. I, um, like you said, I think it's obvious on the personal level, but I'm saying on a worldview level, on the meta narrative level, um, for it's hard to. And I know we are. We've talked about this on Facebook this week, <laughs> but um, it's hard to first of all to see there being um, moral evils, but then um, it's hard to see um, any objective problem with suffering given a naturalistic worldview. Sure, subjectively it's bad, I'm the one feeling the pain, but um, objectively, in the span of things, um, um, we're all just participating in uh, becoming greater life forms, so. Yeah, I mean, well, so I, th I think that there's a, a, a kind of premise in there that I, I think we should object to um, the idea that we're becoming greater life forms. Um, I mean, evolution doesn't, you know, it's not progressing in the, the sense of uh, progressing towards some goal, right? Like it's... It's not a static... Right, it's just a matter of, given the circumstances, you're going to have different selective pressures providing change in the populations, right? So there's no sense in which um, we're, we're better uh, we are quite different, obviously, from non-human animals in the sense that we have the capacity to reason, we have the capacity to uh, recognize our actions and the way in which they affect those around us, and so they do provide uh, moral reasons that, that, that kind of supervene on those kinds of states of affairs. Um, and so I, 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 maybe it's, a, maybe it's a, a problem with my imagination, but I just don't see how, how these, you know, how how you can say that these bad states of affairs are not bad on, on naturalism. It, it seems quite obvious that not only are they, are they subjectively bad, as you say, but, but they quite obviously are just bad states of affairs. Um, and we are aware of them and, and they give us reasons uh, to avoid and to not inflict upon others. And so, um, yeah, I guess I, I don't follow your intuition there. Great points. <laughs> okay, and move on to our next question. Uh, Tim has asserted that the logical problems of suffering, as opposed to the evidential problems of suffering, have been completely refuted. Justin, how would you uh, would you agree with this, or would you disagree with this? Oh, I'm sorry. The question was that uh, that the logical problem is refuted, and if I object to this, the the way I guess the way I worded it was, it's been admitted that the logical problem is solvable. Okay. Um, so. I would agree in the sense that I think Mackey's specific version of the logical argument has been solved. I'm not remotely convinced that, say, um, okay, I don't, I'm going I'm to stop name dropping here. I'm not remotely convinced that there are not other versions within the literature that have not been adequately responded to, such that I think that they are compelling arguments, logical versions of them. Um, whether or not I'd be confident enough to defend them is another issue. Uh, but I think there are arguments out there that are better than Mackey's and that have not received uh, much attention. But you, you would agree that the reason we're talking about evidential arguments here today is because, it's because I feel of the state defending logical arguments. arguments are in. They're <laughs> not in a very defendable state. So I think that the, within philosophy of religion, I think that that is the popular view, yes. Okay. But that, that's, I'll stop there. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, Tim has argued that defending against evidential arguments is sufficient and that, the, uh, that the theist does not need to offer a theodicy. Justin, how would you respond to this argument? I, I, don't, I don't understand it. 
Um, in the sense that, quite clearly, well, so are you, yeah, I guess, could you, could you maybe elaborate on that? Sure, so basically, um, evidential problems of evil, it's an argument lobbied against theism, basically. And, um, and, it's, and it's saying, this is a problem. And so what I'm saying is, um, I don't need to provide the demonstrative final answer to solve it that will compel everyone, namely because the answer doesn't um, exist. Okay, I agree with that. Right. I agree that you don't have to provide an answer that, will, that everyone will find convincing. Right. But I don't know that that's right. anything other than a trivial statement. I don't know that, um, that you're obligated to do that really for anything. Um, I think that I think that if you have a, a significant evidential problem with your view, you should have answers that you find compelling uh, to yourself or to you know to your peers. Um, because you know, I think that quite obviously, if you just ignore it, uh, that that should be a, you know that should be seen as at least somewhat irresponsible um, as as a thinking individual, right? I don't, I'm not saying that that's what you're doing. I'm saying that if one were to do that, that would be irresponsible. Um, so, yeah, I guess, so for me, it's what's the interesting question is what are the answers to it? And are there plausible answers on theism for these evidential problems? Because I don't think there are. Um, so let me quick, you know, we, we've been talking in abstract uh, terms here for the most part. Let's, let's kind of dive into a specific example, perhaps, that might be of more help. So as you're familiar uh, with, with Rose's 1979 paper, he kind of posits this story in which uh, this fawn is in this forest and lightning strikes a dead tree and all the all the forest is you know it's it's all very dry wood and so it it erupts in a, a forest fire rather quickly the fawn no one is around to see the fawn uh, the fawn it gets trapped uh, starts to be horribly burned and like lies in agony for several days before ultimately dying so the question is okay well there's not there wasn't anyone around to learn some you know, compassion about, you know, compassion toward animals in which they might spend the rest of their life um, working at John Stewart's farm or something, right? Uh, so there was no person to gain a benefit in that way. Um, but again, I mean, the point that I made was that the, the suffering would need to be for the primary benefit of the fawn, and the fawn is now dead. So it doesn't seem that the fawn, unless, you know, unless all dogs go to heaven as well as fawns do, um, that seems unlikely, but... Um, so the question is, okay, well, we know that that kind of thing happens every day, every second in the wild. Do we have access to reasons that can plausibly explain that on theism, or are we left to mystery, which again is the opposite of a good explanation? So uh, I will answer your question, but uh, I think it is important, I'll go back to the abstract for a second. Sure. Um, so, so what I was uh, saying was, I, don't ha I can't offer you um, the reason, right, but um, I guess my main point is with the nature of this argument is it's um, an attack upon theism and I'm not required to provide the answer but if I can dismantle the attack and render it weak or useless then I've successfully defended th the theistic position. Um, so in the case of the fawn, um, I think there are ways I could apply the arguments I've already provided, but everyone's heard those plenty of times, so I'll, I'll give another one. Um, so within um, this kind of uh, evidential um, argument, what the atheist needs to demonstrate then is they need to demonstrate 
um, a world that would um, be better and how um, it would work. So let's say, and it, and it can't just apply to one instance. So it's not, we have a God flying around stopping the natural order. Um, you need to um, adjust the natural order to fit it. So let's say we have a world with no lightning. Well, um, in this case, you need to um, demonstrate how that world is going to be a better world than the world that does have lightning. So you have to see the big picture, not just the individual picture. And some problems with that on the offhand is perhaps without seeing lightning, it would have uh, um, slowly held mankind back from discovering electricity and various other reasons and reasons we not even thinking of. But the, uh, I guess my main point is, how can you, what world would you produce that stops these kinds of suffering and how can you prove that that world will indeed have less suffering than the world that you're um, proposing? Sure. Yeah, in my opening statement, I provided such a world. Um, so if you recall in my opening statement, I, I talked about how God um, could create perfect persons. And these are kind of miniature gods. They're little clones of gods. They are, they, perhaps they exist necessarily. Perhaps God creates them in every possible world. Um, and he creates them at every moment in time. And so these are persons who are omniscient, omnipotent, and morally perfect, and uh, they never really, there's not really any, um, you know, they don't really get into tension much because they are, because like God, they all have the same aim. They're all oriented toward the good. Um, this takes all the good things, all the great making properties found within God, and it multiplies them without introducing the evils that, say, free will would bring. Um, moreover, they are in a sense free. They're they're in a sense they're in the same sense of freedom that God has. Um, God isn't free in the libertarian sense, uh, but he's he's still he's free in the sense that he's free from irrational desires and motivations, right? And we think of God as the moral standard, and so quite clearly, if we're to compare perfect freedom that is found in God and and libertarian freedom, clearly perfect freedom is better. So. Um, there's no reason to create finite persons who, um, who choose things in a libertarian way. Um, that, that's, that's a kind of abstract point, but my point is, is that God could make this world of perfect per persons. So, yep. So yeah. uh, <laughs> um, I'm going to appeal to uh, um, the theist Hick on this one, who um, wrote, um, says he's his favorite theist commenting on this topic. But he would argue that um, it's impossible to, um, to argue that either superhumans or subhumans are better than humans. Um, so we could say, sure, on a physical level, it would be better to be superhuman. But for, um, um, for reasons God may have, for example, soul building, um, building character, building depth of personality, and that sort of thing, it may be necessary that we are indeed human and not superhuman. Okay. Yeah. My question then would be, what is so good about character building? If God is the standard of all goodness, um, and he just is the perfect character, why would it not make better sense to um, just build persons of perfect character? In other words, it might seem to us as persons living in the actual world that building character is a good thing, because in the actual world, we know uh, you know, we want to build persons who can um, express certain uh, bravery in the face of evil that happens, right? But that, of course, assumes that we live in this actual world. 
What I'm interested in is why God would create persons that are less than perfect in the first place. And so while character building might be good in a world like ours, that begs the question that God would create a world like ours. What about God creating an entirely different world, one where um, soul building just never comes into the picture? Uh, it's not a good in and of itself, it's only an instrumental good in a world like ours. So I just don't find Hicks' theodicy to really carry any weight, specifically in response to um, positing worlds that are just very different like ours in the first place. Yep. And again, it's, it's an answer, it's not the answer, and in, uh, and in reference to your comments, so um, I, th I think you're exactly right. I think uh, in a way I am begging the question, but I think um, you, are you are also begging the question, um, assuming that um, this world of superhumans would be better. And just a quick note um, on the why did God create, not create perfect beings, um, if you're in biblical Christian um, um, theology here, he originally did, so. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So, so yes, it's true that on Christian theology, uh, there are persons that are, um, that are pure and have high moral character, Adam and Eve, and then they, you know, they, they screwed up, right, and all this happened. Uh, there, are a number of, there are a number of problems with that. First of all, it's just not true. Uh, second of all, um, the, when I talked about perfect persons, I was talking about persons that were not only morally perfect, but they were omniscient and omnipotent as well, like God. And so, um, at least in the way that I defined, or rather, uh, philosopher Adam fails defines perfect persons, Adam and Eve are definitely not perfect persons in that sense. They're, they're quite obviously massively ignorant compared to God. They're quite massively uh, weak compared to God. Um, and even their moral perfection, obviously, was quite finite as well. Um, they, they really liked fruit. So. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time for this segment, but thank you both. Um, so great. If we could please give them both a round of applause. If you have questions or comments about this week's episode, visit realatheology.com or email us at realatheology at gmail.com. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at realatheology. If you find value in this podcast, there are a number of ways by which you can help support the show. You can submit a review of the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast client. Share the show with your friends and family. Join Patreon and pledge a modest amount per episode at patreon.com slash realatheology or donate via the PayPal link on our website. The intro theme is by Thomas Smith of the Serious Inquiries Only podcast. All other music is by Jason Camo of A Lost State of Mind. We would like to thank our patrons. Matt Smith, Richard Kane, Daniel Stenning, Jeremy Zeers, Brandon McCleary, John Danaher of philosophicaldispositions.blogspot.com, Jason Mecoleta, Evan Wirtz, St. Nimbus, Bob April, and Alexander Selmich. <laughs>